0: Well, this morning we conclude our jog through the book of 1 Corinthians that was interrupted by Advent and Lent and Easter, but to which we returned and now come to its conclusion. Paul writes this last chapter, this last, as he calls it, salutation, which is written in his own hand, he says, um, leading us to suppose that the book, uh, much of it was written by a scribe, as he had done in other books, but he adds this personal touch by saying, This I have written in my own hand. So maybe some of it was dictated or whatever. And it's, it's interesting when you get to the conclusions of many of Paul's letters, you really get a little window into the personal life of Paul, the, the, <clears throat> the heart of Paul, uh, the relationship, the real on the ground relationship between him and his churches you know you get the greetings you get the the names being tossed back and forth well don't forget this guy and look I'm sending him and when he gets there do this and and please send my greetings to her and her you know it's just a it's a beautiful window into the life of <clears throat> excuse me of the early church well 1 Corinthians has been a challenging book um, it has been a book of confrontation it has been a book of of chastisement Um, it's also been a book of love. Um, I mean, the, the most famous chapter on love in the Bible is in this, uh, in this book. Paul loves these people and we'll hear that at the end. I mean, the way he ends it, when you think about that, is, my love be with you all. Right? He doesn't end with a word of chastisement. He ends with a word of love. And so, it's been a good book and a challenging book. But now we come to the conclusion and, I want to make, four, or at least draw our attention to four points, and conveniently for me today, they are broken up, really one point from each of the heading areas as Paul concludes his letter. The chapter was read for us this morning, and so I will not read it again, but I'll draw our attention to certain verses throughout. First thing I want to draw our attention to is Paul's call to this collection, to an offering. So as he wraps it up, he then says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. So Paul draws his attention to a collection. Now here, he is not merely just talking about the offering as we have it in the midst of a worship service, though that is what was to be done. We're going to hear the direction to do this, an offering on the first day of the month. But it is from passages like this that we get the offering as part of our worship service. When you look back at the early documents of early church worship services, they contained an offering. So what Paul set in motion here as he planted church, because remember, we're here first generation. These churches are just learning about the gospel. They're popping up in different cities, towns around uh, around uh, Turkey, so Asia Minor, Macedonia, that region north of Greece, and then Greece. And as these churches are popping up, orders of worship are having to be given and so forth. And part of that direction was the idea of an offering. But it starts with this. And this offering he's talking about, this collection was a very specific collection. Paul made it his mission as he went around and planted churches, and let's remember, he's planting churches in Gentile lands. So here's Paul, a Jew, a Hebrew, and not just a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, but a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. This is a man who is embedded in his Hebrew culture, who now, by the very direct will of God, has been called to go out from his home into Gentile lands and share the gospel. And welcome Gentiles into the covenant community as full members within that community to bring to them, as we thought about last week, the mystery of the revelation of God that Gentiles of all people could be and would be full members of the inheritance of Abraham with the Jews. That in fact, they were sons of Abraham by their faith, and that those of Abraham's lineage. Many Jews who did not share Abraham's faith were cut off from the covenant. This was, this was a very beautiful, challenging, hard, painful truth and message that Paul needed to proclaim, but he's doing it out among the Gentile lands. Now, Paul is a realist. Pa- Paul n- understands the optics. So here he is, he's out planting churches in the Gentile land, and yet, how do we handle the relationship between Jews and Gentiles? How, How can we show, not just say, but how can we demonstrate that the church is in fact one? And here would be a beautiful way. If the Gentile churches took up offerings to send back to their Jewish brothers that they don't even know back in Jerusalem. Because the Jews back in Jerusalem who had followed Christ and were now Christians, and don't forget, we go back to Pentecost. I mean, there at Pentecost, 3,000 people believe, and people were beginning to believe all over the place. Well, those people didn't just believe and, okay, form a, a Christian community and they're welcomed within civil society. No. Remember, the civic society of Jerusalem is Jewish. It's bringing Jesus up on charges. It's bringing the apostles up on charges. It's killing Stephen. You become a Christian Jew in Jerusalem. You were cut off from society. You are cut off from synagogue welfare, if you will, you know, from the the help of the Jewish community for the poor. I don't know what you do for employment. You may not have employment. And so you have a community of brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are suffering. And Paul sees a beautiful and amazing opportunity to incarnate church unity. By bringing Gentile money from Greece, from Macedonia, and from Asia Minor down as a collection, down to his Jewish brothers and say, hey, your Gentile brothers send this in love to you. Wow. What a a real, tangible, visible act of love and unity. And that is the offering that he's speaking of here. And in a very real sense, that is what our offering is about. I mean, yes, our offering uh, that we take keeps the lights on. You know, make sure that the lawn is mowed and that we have supplies and new Bibles when they need them. It pays my, my pay for, for uh, being here. It does all those kinds of things of making sure the ministry and life of this church does its thing. But of course, it does beyond that. Oh, it's Think about the gesture of unity and love that it is. And and we know it is. We've shared, Mark has shared with you letters that have come back. Sometimes we have the privilege to speak with these people. As as I, I said, I had uh lunch last week with with Tony Umarov in, in uh Uromov in in uh in Newburgh. I get to sit across the table and hear the thanks for the the support of the church. Or when my brother Steve comes around and shares with you the 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 joy of that church knowing that they have a partner here. Or of churches in India who get our money through Freshwater Friends, or the work of Chris Holdrich up in Rochester, who, when we see him, and we'll see him at Presbyterian in a couple weeks, will come and share with a joyful heart uh, the partnership of this church. I mean, it's a real blessing. And what is it? What is it communicating? It's communicating that we see your needs. That though we're far away from Germany, our hearts are with you. We're there with you. Here, take this. We haven't forgotten you. You, When that money arrives, it says that our hearts arrive. It's like it tells them that we're praying for you. We think of you. We're with you. Whether that's in Rochester or in Macedonia or in Germany or in India or wherever else we have supported. And by the way, it's not just here. Of course, churches all over the world are doing this. And money is just flying around. You know the world from churches to other churches, where they are essentially saying that to one another, and it is again a very tangible. We we can't all be in Germany helping Stephen. We we can't be all digging wells in India. We we just can't do that. Nor are we all called to that. We all can't be up in in Rochester helping Chris. But when we give of ourselves and when we give of our money, we are we are giving ourselves the time that we put in raising that money. That those days of labor. I essentially am sending to Germany. I'm sending them to Rochester. I'm sending them to India, whoever the case might be. In this case, they were sending them to Jerusalem. It wasn't just money because we got a problem. Hey, we got to fix it. It was their hearts they were sending. It was their time they were sending. It was their attention that they were sending. And it mattered. It mattered to Paul because he saw the gospel at stake here. He saw the identity of the church at stake, and it was a beautiful thing that they were doing. So now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, that's the, the region of sort of northern and or at least um, eastern uh, Turkey, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, right? According to your abilities, let us do it. That there be no collection when I come. That is to say, let's not make it where I come and we pass the hat. And say, okay, what what, what can we scrap together right now? No, no, build in, he's telling the church, build in the weekly ritual of giving so that when I come, you already have gathered funds to be able to give me that uh, I may take it or that you might send them. And when I come, Whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So you'll you'll tell me who is trustworthy. This is a very dangerous thing to transport money like that. Uh, and Paul's been doing it. It's one of the reasons he's he tells the Corinthians and Second Corinthians, you know, I face all kinds of dangers on the highway, dangers at sea. I mean, he in many ways, especially on this third missionary journey, is going to be ca- carrying money uh, with him uh, for the sake of the church there. But here. We'll take those who are tested by you and we'll trust them, unless you don't think so, unless you think it'd be better. And then in which case, I personally will go all the way down to Jerusalem and make this thing happen. So here we have the habit of our worship and our giving, but I think it, it reminds us of the beauty. The, the, I, and I hope you feel this as you give, led by the spirit to give in your offering, that you are not merely throwing money in a plate, but that what you are doing is an act of worship. And it is an act of incarnating the gospel in love of your brothers and sisters and of your neighbor, whether it's used in the diaconal fund to help a person in need, or whether it's in the mission fund to make sure that the work in Germany or Rochester is being cared for, or whether it's making sure that this church is provided for so that we can keep our lights on and so forth, that it is an act of worship and love. And that's what Paul is directing the Corinthians to. And I would encourage you, by the way, to uh in in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'll just read this to you because it is beautiful. Paul in 2nd Corinthians is chastising the Corinthians, perhaps for their for their giving, um, but but uses the Macedonians, just to their north, uh, as, as an example of what giving looks like. And here's what he says to them: moreover, brethren. And, and you'll remember, he says to the Corinthians in chapter 16, I'm coming to you, but I'm going to come up through Macedonia. And here he speaks of them. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches in Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. What, about, what brought forth their liberality? What brought forth the riches of, Of their giving, trial, joy, and poverty. (laughs) Trials, joy, and poverty abounded in rich liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, remember the widow's might, it's not about, it's not about the tens of thousands or millions or hundreds. It's according to their ability, what they're able to give. And he looks at that in their poverty was a richness of liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us. So now the Macedonians are asking Paul, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that he had begun, who would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, speech, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. You know, be like the Macedonians who out of the riches of their joy even in the midst of their poverty and facing great trials, the fruit was liberality of giving and they begged Paul to be part, maybe even a greater part of the offering that was going down to those Jewish brothers. What a what a joy it must have been for Paul to be able to bestow that money on these on the their, the poor brethren in Jerusalem and to share testimonies like that. what a what a joy it must have been and I know it's a joy for my brother Stephen to testify to his church about the love that he feels when he comes here and the checking in on him and the sending of the gifts. And again, for Rochester and for everywhere else. So may we we feel motivated by that and encouraged by that. So first, the offering. Second, Paul's plans. And I'm not going to read them all. I just want to highlight one particular plan of Paul's that jumps out to me and challenges me and excites me. And that's down in verse 8. Um, well, let me go to verse 7. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So I'm, I'm not going to come right now, but I, I am going to come back to you, Corinthians. And we know he does in the, second, in the third missionary journey. He's with them in the, the second missionary journey and then in the third missionary journey. So not now, but I will be there. But then he says this, and I love this, in verses 8 and 9. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. So he's on, he's in Ephesus. Ephesus is on the west coast of Asia Minor. So just right across the sea from, from Greece, right? Just a stone's throw there. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. And here's his reasoning. For a great and effective door has been opened to me. Okay, well, that sounds like a good reason to say. It's what I prayed for Brent, right? That that uh, in, in his wisdom for a job, Lord, if you want him there, fling the doors open. And Paul looks at an opportunity and he, he's in Ephesus. And he's like, the doors are wide open. I'm not going to leave. I, I got the doors of opportunity flung open to me here to minister the gospel, right? And we would all say, well, yeah, Paul, okay, we that makes sense to us. But it's the next line I love. For a great and effective door has open, been open to me and there are many adversaries. I'm going to stay here a while. Okay, because I've got a real opportunity and there's a lot of people that hate me here. So I'm going to hang right here. Now, you know, it might be our inclination to say, hey, there's a lot of adversaries, so I'll be seeing you guys in a couple of days. I'm going to, you know, kind of scoot out of here while the the, the, the you know, the temp's a little hot down here or over here in Ephesus. I think I'm going to scoot over. If you guys have time, I think I may shoot over now. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. The, the The temperature in the room is pretty hot here, so I know this is where I'm called to be. And just as that, spirit of the Macedonians that out of their poverty brought forth liberality, and that the paradox of that, the irony of that, so also here, for Paul, it is the very affliction. It's the fact that the adversaries are are on edge, that he knows the gospel is about. You know, Aslan is on the move here. Right, the, the the kingdom of God is is at work. The spirit of his, of God is at work because it's stirring up this kind of animosity. Man, I don't know about you, but I we tend to think you know we can often find ourselves thinking the other way. You know, we will will move away from adversity, but Paul is moving right into it. And you know, I could have chosen as our New Testament reading today the passage in in Acts nineteen. I mean, what does this adver- adversity look like? Riots riots, riots are gonna break out in Ephesus because of the gospel. Yeah, a door has opened to him and he's preaching the gospel and so many people are believing it, right? Again, Aslan's on the move here. The, The spirit of God is at work and people are believing it to such an extent that it is actually cutting into the economy of Ephesus. Much of the economy of Ephesus was built around the worship of Diana. Great temples to the Roman goddess Diana were there. The silversmiths are the ones that riot here because they make the trinkets and the the, the things for worship of Diana. And it's a beautiful market. They're just cranking out this religious garbage and people are buying it up because this is where you come to worship Diana. And when you come, you need this trinket and that trinket and this little thing and that thing. And whatever's happening in Ephesus, so many people are believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the preaching of Paul that actually the silversmiths are going out of business. Think about that. You talk about a door of opportunity. Paul was reading the room right because people are believing in mass. So much so that the silversmiths notice and start a riot against Christianity. And you look in the fray, and who's standing there? (laughs) this awkward little guy named Paul. He's right in the middle of it. And Paul's like, as long as this is going on, I'm staying right here. I'm going nowhere. And I just love that. And I I feel invigorated by it. I feel challenged by that. It's, It's, you know, as I write to Christian brothers and sisters around the country, you know, there is something about ministering in New York that has its challenges, right? I mean, pastoring a little church in New York, but also running a Christian school in New York. It's like, it's not, though I, I'm not not nearly the Ephesian levels. But you feel, you feel the cultural tensions and hostilities. And this just reminds me, stop whining about it. <laughs> stop whining and roll up your sleeves and get to work because this is where you're called to be. So may we all be encouraged because we're all doing kingdom work here in the darkening Northeast. So first, the offering. Secondly, the plans that Paul has and a little window into his own heart. Then thirdly, and and most poignantly for us, I think, well, maybe not, the, the charge that he gives. And this is down in verses 13 and 14. And he gives these little, short, little, choppy um, exhortations to us. And in some ways, they mimic exactly what Paul was doing in Ephesus. So he says, watch. Secondly, stand fast in the faith. Thirdly, be brave. And fourthly, be strong. The ESV says for be brave, act like men. But of course, in our, in our culture, this would raise all kinds of, how dare you say act like men? We don't even know what a man is. How can we tell him to act like a man? Um, you know, who's to say I'm not a man? All right. So we get the point. All right. So, so, you know, the, the new King James helps us out here by, by avoiding that kind of language and getting right to the, the characteristics. But notice verse 13, watch, be watchful. And here, is where I tapped into our 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 reading word of exhortation from Revelation chapter three to the church at Sardis, right? You are asleep. Wake up, he tells them. You're asleep at the gate. And literally, as I said, that city of Sardis, it was built on a cliff. Like on three sides, there was no way really to attack it. All they really had to do was watch the gate. And so they did, but they, they became... They sloughed off vigilance. And literally a group of mountain climbers, you know, scaled the walls behind them, came in at night, opened the gates and let the enemy in because they just thought we're impenetrable. And that's how the city was overcome and defeated. They literally fell asleep at the switch. They literally were not vigilant. And so when the Lord brings the word to them, and we could do this through each of the seven cities... Uh, that he addresses, the seven churches. Those things he says to them are very poignant to them as a city. But to the church of Sardis, you literally fell asleep at the switch and you are doing the same thing spiritually. And I'm telling you, wake up, be watchful, or I will come like a thief and snuff you out. And so the word to the Corinthians here is be watchful. You've got these false teachers coming in. You must be vigilant. You must attend to the faith. You must guard your heart. And same, the word of the Lord is to us as well. So be watchful. Secondly, stand fast in the faith. You've got to anchor yourselves to the truths of the faith. I mean, that's what we try to do here at Affirmation, right? Whether it's table talks, whether it's Sunday schools where we try to draw the roots down deep into the soil on a particular topic of the sermon or whatever we do. Why? Because we're trying to stand fast. We live in an age that's very flighty, very thin. I mean, we just don't dive deep into the Word of God and make sure we draw deep roots into the truth of God's Word. And that's what Paul is telling us to do because if not, you'll be easily pushed over. So stand fast and then be brave. Be brave. And this is where, man, is Paul not a model for us? I'm staying here because the adversity is strong. Yeah. We need to be brave. We need to lay hold of the truth, knowing that our hope is not in this age. My identity is not what my neighbor thinks about me. Though I want my neighbor to like me, I I want them to think I'm I'm a fine young, young man, a gentleman. But at the same time, my identity is in Christ. My hope is not in this age. My hope is not in the prosperity of this age. My hope is not in getting up some ladder. My hope is in Christ, and my hope is in the kingdom of God. Therefore, be brave and courageous. Right As, as we looked at last week in Psalm 91, go read, if you need courage, go read Psalm 91. Right, They might kill you, but they can't hurt you. Remember, that was the line we used last week. They may kill you, but they can't hurt you. There's nothing, literally nothing, that the enemy can take away from you. There's not one thing that Jesus has for you that they can take away from you. Nothing. In fact, he will use all of their efforts, even the hard things in your life, where it feels like much has been taken away from you, even those things the Lord will transform into gold. Even those things he will transform into glory. C.S. Lewis meets George MacDonald in his fictitious story, The Great Divorce, and MacDonald tells him, you know, for the Christian, when he gets to glory, he looks back upon his life and realizes, though he didn't have eyes to see it, it's been heaven all along. And the non-believer, when he or she dies and looks back on a life, realizes it's been hell all along, no matter how good it was. It was a foretaste of hell, it never satisfied. For a Christian, we look back and even the hard things, even the trials, when we have eyes that are glorified, we look back and we can see, oh Lord, that's what you were doing in and through, that you were refining me like gold for this day. It's a beautiful thing and therefore we can be brave. So we watch and we're steadfast and we're brave and we're strong, be bold, right? You be bold, not a timid Christian but acting with boldness. So the offering, the plans, the charge, and then finally, the benediction, the blessing, but notice the blessing does, it's it's one of these things where it's like, it's sour and then sweet. It's bitter and then it satisfies because Paul's blessing to the church comes right on the heels of a curse. And go back and read Psalm 21 today, because Psalm 21 starts out beautiful. Oh, the king is doing great, and oh, Lord, you love the king, and oh, the king loves you, and this is just wonderful and great. And then all of a sudden it turns to the enemies. And he uses some really strong language, language that would make us a little uncomfortable in the 21st century. You know, the Lord's going to resist them to their face. He's going to put the arrow in their face. I mean, you know, it's like very strong language, imprecatory language. But notice how Paul ends his letter to the Corinthians, verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And we don't know if Paul is speaking about those within the church at Corinth or those in the broader community, even those who are now persecuting him in Ephesus. Obviously, he wants all men and women to love the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul puts it out there, and I think, again, this is something we have to reckon with. This gives us a little bit of the urgency to be steadfast and to be abounding in the work of the Lord, because those who do not love or trust the Lord Jesus Christ are, in fact, accursed. They're accursed. You know, I love to listen to all kinds of things, as as I'm talking about, like, podcasts and lectures and many of them christian sermons and christian professors and so forth but i listen to a lot of other things as well right political stuff uh, cultural stuff leadership stuff business stuff and man i i listen to some of these people with great wisdom and just uh, uh, so many things i love but i know i know that they are not believers and i pray that they would be and i just think oh my gosh All this laboring, all this strategy, all of these plans, all of this, the aims for the world and for society and for business and for your job and for your career and all these things in which there is really so much worldly wisdom. But in the end, for what? For what? In the end, apart from Christ, nothing but curse. And it's like a chilling moment, you know? And it's worth us remembering one for our own hearts that we might indeed love the Lord Jesus Christ, but two, again, to reignite that flame in us for those who do not. Like this isn't just oh we get along to get, you know go along to get along and kind of just make our way through our days. No, there's there's there are eternal things at stake. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And then he gives this this plea. Oh Lord, come, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, like John ends the book of Revelation. And then the blessing, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Yes, if anyone does not love Jesus Christ, they are cursed. Not because some curse is going to be given to them, but because the only source of grace and blessing is in Christ. And if you pull yourself out from Christ, there is nothing but curse. You remove yourself out of the light, you end up in darkness. You remove yourself from the only source of grace and life, you end up in death and curse. And so his prayer for the Corinthians is that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ might be with them, and may it be with us as well, who in this very service have already confessed that we deserve the darkness. There's there's no difference in me, between me and the person who's not in Christ. It's grace that has brought us thus far. It's grace that has made us who were once dead alive. It's grace, amazing grace, who took us who were once blind and made us see. And that's what we celebrate as we come to church. And that's why we need to be here, because Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we need to remind ourselves, like the Laodiceans, lest we end up being like them in our word of exhortation today. You think you're rich. You think you can see. You think you're something. You think you're alive. But I'm telling you, you're blind, naked, wretched, and poor. But I will clothe you. But I will make you to see. But I will give you an inheritance beyond anything you can imagine. I will give to you to sit on my throne with me if you trust in me. If you not be lukewarm, lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Come and trust in me. I'm at the door knocking. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. Right? It's generosity, grace of the Lord. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then his final words, as I said, my love be with you all. Some of Paul's words within this letter haven't felt like love, but what he's telling us here is it is. The hard things that have to be said sometime are said not in spite of my love, but because of my love. Again, because Paul recognizes that the stakes are high, he will say the hard thing, even if it means the crowds rise up and want to stone him as they do in Ephesus. Because I love you. I say these things to you and may my love through this letter be with you all. And may Paul's love be with you as mine is as well in the preaching of it. And may we together stand in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your church. We thank you for your incarnate love. Lord, help us to incarnate our love for you and our love for the brethren in our giving, in our service, in tangible acts of love and compassion. Give us strength and bravery and courage and perspective as we minister and seek to be faithful in in a culture that is increasingly hostile toward the faith. And may we run into the challenges and not away from them. And Lord, we pray for those who are lost. We pray for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those who are cursed. And we ask that you would draw them by your grace to the Lord Jesus Christ and keep us watchful, steadfast in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we we might be eternally blessed forevermore. For we ask this in his name. Amen.